Welcome to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Our guests today are Tom Kamita and Suzanne Stein. Tom Kamita is a writer and performer living in Oakland, California, originally from Westchester, Pennsylvania. I think I realized that it's okay to create an exciting moment. And, and actually, the sound poems or whatever they're called, they're exciting and they're stimulating and they're not just entertainment. You know, they, they do other things. Suzanne Stein is also a writer and performer living in Oakland, California, and a native of Los Angeles. I also don't feel so comfortable with uh, with that with the third wall, or the fourth wall, whatever. I, I don't feel that comfortable with the separation between myself and an audience. I really long for that kind of interaction that the place of a poetry reading or even a book, it's not, it's not naturally present. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on K Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. You can listen to The People on the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. Or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. There you can find out more. Tom Kamita and Suzanne Stein, welcome to The People. Thank you. Welcome, guys. Right on. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I thought that maybe we could just start off um, with a little question quote for Suzanne. We've been in dialogue a lot, and uh, I was doing some reading on Suzanne's work the, in the past week. And in this uh, interview from 2006 with C.A. Conrad, uh, Suzanne wrote, Poetry can refigure a body or a being or an environment. And I was curious because, you know, 2006 is almost 10 years ago. But that quote seems to resonate with Suzanne, what Suzanne's doing today. Um, and so I'm curious about how that, that idea has um, kind of grown or developed over time. And, you know, it seems like a big part of your practice has to do with thinking about context and environments. And maybe I'll just read it again just to bring it back to um, us. Poetry can refigure a body or a being or an environment? Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's funny, when you read it the first time, I thought, oh my God, that's so long ago. You know, how am I, like, do I think that way anymore? I think that, well, it was very important to me at the time. I think at the time I had just started working um, in my current place of work, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. I was... Um, it was my first job there. I was the docent tour scheduler, and um, I spent a lot of time in a cubicle, uh, stuffing envelopes and um, mailing things, calendaring things. And then, when I wasn't trapped in that environment, I was walking into the building, um, the, the main museum building, and really feeling um, how the structure of the building acted on my body. And I was thinking that time um, a lot about how I could transform my experience of that space via what I was thinking about as poetry, which I think because I was so constrained physically in a way became about making the poetry make some kind of movement into into the space and affect it in some way. It's true, the work I'm doing now 
um, has fully absorbed that early thinking. So I don't even see it as much, I think. Um, so like, you know, the piece that I'll read tomorrow night when we read together, um, at the PRB will, it it also is going to try to do that. But I think that I I didn't even realize until you asked the question, how clearly it was still operating under those terms of transformation of some kind. So does that a little bit answer your question? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, that's why I brought it up. I I feel like I see that in your work. I've only seen one performance of Suzanne's, but I've heard a lot. And, it, you know, the, the and I've read a lot, you know, but actually being in a, a transformed space. Maybe for people who aren't familiar yeah, what with I... Suzanne's work, maybe describe that, that performance that you saw. Yeah, yeah. Like just, yeah, break it down for us. Yeah. So, so the performance began, it was a poetry reading. It's the context. Poetry reading at the, the Long Hall in Oakland. And there were two other poets. I believe Suzanne was the third. And, um, she stood up and introduced this piece. The piece that, of course, the introduction was part of the piece, but the what's what was like framed as the piece, you know, was simply the pressing play on a recording of an a previous reading, and all of us just listening to the reading in the room. And that's only one part of it because the reading that we listened to. So we were in Oakland, right? The reading that we listened to was in was from San Francisco maybe a year before? Yes. Something like that? I think eight or nine months before. Eight or nine months before. But that piece was a, a performed, spoken transcription of a performance in Berkeley maybe eight months before that. So we were getting all these layers. You would get this kind of original text. We were listening to a tr- performance of the transcribed original talk, which was not written down, or it was? It was written down. Okay. But still, it was a reading, a transcript. We were listening to the reading of a transcription of a previous performance. Um, and then, of course... There is some not written down text oh, right. imbe- embedded in this. The second version included some improvisation. Right. Very loosely defined. <laughs> yeah. Improvisation seems to imply that there's an art mm-hmm. <laughs> happening this is more and you and you speech. actively you actively distance yourself from people sort of saying what you're doing is performance art is that correct um yes i think under the terms of poetry um yes that's correct you want to, you want to be called a poet i think it's um it most closely suits it's the you know Robert Kotchick says poetry can take any substrate. So it, it's the thing that the umbrella is large enough, I think. Um, and I don't feel like a performance. I don't feel as though the, it's not a performance art. There's a, there's, there are other things that seem to be accrued to how people think about what performance art is. And I don't really think that I'm operating under those terms. I am actually very interested in in text, in speech, language in a very specific writerly way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if I could turn the question back to Tom, actually, because, um, and I could begin by describing um, for our listeners that my first encounter with one aspect of Tom's work, and I will say um, 
for listeners who might not know, Tom does all kinds of things. His work is incredibly varied. Um, this particular performance was at um, the Berkeley Art Museum. David Brazil, who's a poet in the Bay Area, um, and I had been asked to um, curate a reading series, a poetry reading series, and the, the museum was looking for something pretty like straight up, two readers reading from page. And we didn't give them that. We invited, um, I think, eight people over eight nights to do different kinds of things. And Tom um, brought his, now Tom, you'll correct me if I don't get the title correct, um, his guerrilla opera to the Berkeley Art Museum. And we were in a small room. They, they had a reading room set up, small room with books all around. And Tom, as soon as we introduced him, I think stood up and said, grab, am I getting this right? I can edit it a Thank little you. bit. Thank <laughs> you. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I did introduce it. You did I, introduce I it. Okay. I had written some essay about why we were doing these grill operas and then invited everybody to in the room to take part in one, which involved everybody reading from the books around us. Um, actually, I think at that point we were in the grill operas were all about singing. So <laughs> whatever that meant, that was just kind of my go-to term for some kind of heightened, it could be heightened speech or it could just be speech, but people are more invited. Uh, people are more moved to play when it's called singing and not just speaking, you know? Right. So well, go, go on with your impression yeah. of his um, performance. Well, Immediately, I guess after Tom's introduction, the room, everybody in the room stood up and started pulling things off the shelves and reading, singing, screaming, mm. quite um, incredibly disrupting and transforming this actually, this actually pretty tidy, a little bit uptight, very formal, enclosed space. And I think I was struck by a few things. One, by... Um, well, the invitation and uh, to participate, people's willingness to do it. And also, um, because the, the invitation was open, um, the crowd or the group of people, in other words, any opera was going to be a different opera depending on who was participating, right? And that was really interesting to me. In this particular instance, there was a lot of screaming. Yeah. Like an unusual amount of screaming, maybe not for the Bay Area. Is, but it, there was an un is it unusual? In, an, in a grill opera, I think it depends. It you depends know, the on one, the context. The one I, I uh, first encountered was a recording of, and I, th I think you had a video of some of it too, but a recording of uh, the, the conceit for the Gorilla Opera was a bunch of people wandering, I think, through San Francisco, like not Oakland, but San Francisco, and just singing whatever language was in their visual environment. So... Typically street signs and billboards, but but it wasn't wandering. It was a uh, it was the Bay to Breakers route, which is oh. a which is a a race. Um, but and it's now known as this big party where everybody gets drunk and destroys the streets. Um, but we did. They've it. banned alcohol. Oh really? Okay. Last year, I think. Anyway. Well, this was when they hadn't, and but but when we did the route, it was like off season, or yeah. you know, b b people were just going about their day. I forget which day of the week it was, but I don't know. I guess, you know, per the, you know, your original question to me, but I'm wondering if you can say something about, you know, what, what you're trying to, or, you know, what your expectations are around that or what you're trying to affect or mm. disrupt or not disrupt or. Well, 
I think I've changed a lot since then. Okay. That was 20... Well, that project began in 2011. Mm-hmm. And that performance at the Berkeley Art Museum was in 2012. Back then, I mean, I still love the energies that that was in. But um, but that back then, it was very much inspired by... Um, the energies of that year, you know, that was when the Arab Spring began. I mean, it began just, I think it was three days after Hosni Mubarak uh, was removed from power in Egypt. And our first opera was called A Night at the Opera with Hosni Mubarak, hosted by Dave Eggers. Mm. But Dave Eggers was there for marketing, you know. I mean, he, he didn't, was not invited. But we did post posters and invites outside of the that 826 Valencia thing, you know. Anyway, that was just inviting like 40 people to read for 40 You didn't get from. an angry call from Dave Eggers? No. that's I, Does he get mad? I don't know. But, um, he doesn't but, leave the house. But really, um, I, yeah. We, that project totally began out of uh, being writers and thinking about, I mean, in all honesty, transforming the world. And like, how could we, I mean, it's very, at this moment, I feel like funny saying that it sounds naive, you know, but I was young and totally, uh, you know, channeling that. And it actually seemed that you could at that point, like, and, and that language could, because in December before that, WikiLeaks had just started publishing their, um, they, they just did the cable gate. And I remember six months before in August, I watched anonymous live tweet, dis- uh, taking down the Arizona Police Department's website and all these were language-based mm-hmm. interventions, you know. So that combined with like having discovered Fluxus and just being a performer and getting into sound poetry and vocal performance just made that had this cocktail of what if we could create anarchy in a moment and what would that how could how could those energies spread out? Mm-hmm. So I mean, by the time of that performance, though, we had done all kinds of things. We did one, we did them in the streets, like actually as protests. One was on the first day of the um, extradition hearing of Julian Assange in the United Kingdom. We sang WikiLeaks cables for 12 hours in front of the federal building. Or, you know, we, so we were at that point, it was kind of like art at the service of mm-hmm. protest politics. Um, by the time of that performance, though, Occupy had already happened. So all of this began before Occupy. And it seemed to be invited, if you were invited to a poetry reading, and this was literally like, I think the reading occurred maybe 10 days after that J28 that everybody talks about, mm-hmm. where um, it was like kind of the end of Occupy in Oakland, mm-hmm. where a lot of people got arrested and were mishandled by the police. Um, so it felt kind of weird to give, to do a poetry reading, and it made a lot of sense to kind of make an anarchic space. And in talking about this sound poetry thing, which we might talk about more, which I'm not, I feel confused about or skeptical of, one of the people in the audience was probably the most famous sound poet in the Bay Area from the, the 70s, who I had become friends with, and he hated the performance. At I, the remember you, I remember you saying that. <laughs> and, and did he say why? Um, it was chaos. It was chaos. He, well, he, yeah. The, the, Berkeley wasn't particularly happy with it either. <laughs> Larry Rinder was like... Not so happy. Telling me to stop it like five minutes before, but we had said that we were going to do it for 40 minutes. And I, yeah, who is it for non-poetry people? Oh, I, it was Charles Armorcanian, okay. um, who is a, he's a great guy. But I do think that I 
Well, it, that was not that was not the best thing to hear as a young, uh, like sound poet. But I should say what he exactly said was, um, that was anarchy, and that was a negative thing. You're listening to the People on K Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White, and I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press, so go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page to find out more. Let's return to our conversation with Tom Kamita and Suzanne Stein. So yeah, um, we talked a bit about your past thought and work, Suzanne, but I did want to also ask a bit more about some earlier... Um, developments in your writing. I know you studied poetry, I believe, at San Francisco State. Is that right? I was actually admitted in fiction oh, okay. at San Francisco State, but I, I don't know that I did much fiction. I did take one. Um, I took a writing workshop with Dodie Bellamy, mm. a poet. Uh, sorry, writer in San Francisco. Um, and I. Th- I don't think I, I did sort of a narrative-esque, cut up narratives. I didn't actually ever write any short stories. I think it was a short story class. I pretty much entered in fiction and only wrote poetry. Hmm. So I guess I'm curious because I guess depending on who you work with, um, nobody really ever asks a writer to, I don't know, break out of writing in ways that you've done or break into new forms of writing that are maybe inverting expectations like that that I've never seen a course like that maybe I've gone to the wrong programs but you know I guess I'm curious about yeah your transition from that kind of writing and even if you were I think I've seen some poems that are like more like with line breaks and what I might call verse poetry sometimes you know Mm -hmm. which is a distinction I make because whatever we're doing in our own ways is um is also poetry but I feel like sometimes people say it is not but I believe that that might be an argument saying we're not just writing verse, you know? So I guess I'm just curious about your move from, I know you talked about it a bit about this moment, but yeah. Um, well, just to answer, I, w- I do want to answer this thing about verse line poetry. I always, I often have thought of about the work I'm doing is just on the, on the macro level, like on the way macro level. So the lines are just super big. <laughs> um, but if you could get far enough back, you could see that it's, you know, it's a line. I, I, I don't know that. I mean, I would say that San Francisco State at that time was a pretty, you know, you could do anything. Fiction writers could take the poetry classes. Um, I don't think you can do that there anymore, actually, I've heard. Mm. Um but before that, before I entered the program, I, um, I, I audited, which is also unusual, I audited a translation class taught by Norma Cole, the poet mm. and translator in the Bay Area, Norma Cole, um, because, I, I don't know, a friend or something said, oh, I think you really like Norma. And um, her way of teaching translation was, I mean, of course, we began with homophonic translation, and right away, translation was something to be um, exploded. Um, and there was, there was just infinite freedom in what you wanted to translate from one thing to the next. She suggested translations from, I think she must have trans, you know, suggested that you could translate an object, you know, visual things. 
and I had found, I hope this is a bit answering your question, but I had found um, uh, a, a suite of 16 millimeter films that had been um, shot by a Pan Am pilot in the 40s. They were silent. They're, they're absolutely gorgeous. And so I spent the semester um, translating these, doing a lot of research, and then um, around, like, I you know, looked for clues in the films to see what was there. Um, how could I trace the map of where this guy was flying to? I did a lot of research on the planes um, and on, you know, things about the clouds and the sky, et cetera. I, I, tra- I translated, uh, using the bank of six films, I translated um, one of them, which had a really exquisite, I won't give it away, a really exquisite sort of last few frames. And, and then the piece was to, you know, perform. This is like neo early neo benchy right mm-hmm. conrad steiner who's a filmmaker in the bay area started doing these uh, shows of poets doing works with film this was actually well before that i had never seen anything like that myself i didn't have a lot of knowledge around that kind of practice but i did it because it was an opportunity to do it and i think my own experience of feeling what what it was like to be in a room with language another object that was very exciting to me and the, and people responded really positively and with a lot of enthusiasm for that and that's always you know good for a young person a youngish person trying to make work yeah and did you ever do theater when you were younger um no but i've done a lot of poets theater with kevin mm. killian who's a poet playwright poets theater genius if anyone out there doesn't know who he is, look him up. And what's Poets Theater for non-poet people? Oh, gosh. Um, Tom, Poets Theater. It's poets doing theater. Um, yeah. I would say it tends to... Well, let's see. Poets will argue maybe about what Poets Theater yeah, is. I'm looking at all three of your faces. <laughs> They're you. all squunched up. Some people will say it's a bunch of people standing around with a sheet of paper and no set and no costumes. But it it runs quite the big range, and we've seen some really, like, uh, elaborate theatrical poets' theater. And, I mean, it should be said, small press traffic, right? Small press traffic does the yearly poets' theater uh, performances, things like Tom did one recently. I've been up there before and acted in one, and... um, it's kind of amazing that you guys have that up there. Um, and there was recently a, an anthology that I think Kevin and David Brazil edited yeah. of Poets Theater. Of Poets Theater, like kind of the history of Poets Theater. Yeah. It's Kenning. Kenning, Kenning editions, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a it's a whole, uh, you know, tradition. And uh, to, wrap, to, to kind of give it a, if I can humbly give it like a, I think it's a little bit like people up there with paper and also kind of, you know, insane explosion of poets like actually on the stage. And, you know, the theater maybe doesn't move. You know, it's not like, oh, they're in the kitchen and now there's a gun or that might happen. And then, yeah, it just doesn't follow typically normal. A normal narrative arc. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I thank you that I derailed us by wanting to know what Poets Theater was. Well, the reason I asked um, was because was that you know you work with the kind of state some when your performance you work with like the stage. I mean, we're we're kind of invited 
as writers up to a stage, even if there is no, you know, Mm -hmm. rising of the plane. But then also your book, Tu Va Bien, that book, and I might just say a lot of your work, I feel like you, I see you using the page as a kind of stage. I mean, that book is documents two performances and it also has a script in the middle, right? And there's more. Um, am I reading your work incorrectly or what do you think about that idea? Um, I think that I think about the space in which the work takes place really in a very um, like agonizingly considered way. Um, so uh, even against my will, all of the performances and all of the works have a pretty set structure. They, um, they have three parts. They kind of fold out or mirror each other, maybe. There's something either absent or definitive in the center. Um, and I think, yeah, that's like a stage. That's a particular stage, and things can take place inside of that. When you performed at the Poetry Project in New York, um, apparently afterwards, like Tom Donovan sent you a series of questions. Um, and he talked about performance art, but I think he missed, um, and Tom, you know, I'm not dogging on you, but I think actually he missed an opportunity to ask about um, the kind of theatrical nature of your work. And I hope you don't like have any problem with that phrase, but but I think, Tom, you, you've got something here in that it's not necessarily... I don't feel like you're doing a, a stage play or... But but from the readings that I've heard of yours, um, it there is, I, I, I could be wrong, but it feels like there is like we're immediately put into the position of an audience of, of uh, not not a poetry. I don't feel like from listening to these that that I think seeing you perform, I wouldn't I would immediately feel like, oh, I'm not in a poetry audience anymore. And I, I know that you're all about it being within poetry, but because of the way in which you interrupt yourself or you constantly digress, there's something beyond just poetry going on. And my and it may be too easy to go to theatrical, but that's I think the most simple apt term. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know, it but you it seems you just forswore theater on some level. I forswore theater and said, no. I'm never going to do that. I'm going to do it as never, a po- I'm going to poet it up instead. Um, go ahead, Tom. You want to uh, well, ask a question? But yeah, theater. But I think that that word is so, you know, I kind of brought us there, but that what? word is kind of loaded with its yeah. own historical True. baggage. And yeah, all that. which is the problem, of course. Yeah. But then, I don't know. I mean, Suzanne and I were talking about our readings um, tomorrow, and this word attention At came up. the Poetic up. Research Bureau here in Los Angeles, California, right? Yes, now. yeah. Um, That's correct. And I mean, I guess I, I just wonder if if it is theater, there's a kind of, you're talking about your work as this macro poetic yeah, poetry, but it also operates on this, on this micro level um, where, I don't know, I mean, there's a kind of free play that I feel when I experience Suzanne's work that my experience and the person sitting next to me they're connected but they're pretty separate you know so 
I don't know what that is, but I, I it, yeah. it's very, um, I guess it makes me, I, it is a, a work of like attention and, and, and my attention is actually given agency, I think, which is something that's really exciting. And all of ours are because we're not direct. We're not, our attention is not focused on one stream of, um, wisdom that we're receiving, but sometimes maybe, but, uh, but we're kind of, yeah, given agency to, to kind of more openly act. I appreciate you saying that because that has, that's been very important to me in thinking about, I think I, I have a lot of discomfort with the idea that I'm going to offer a stream of wisdom or something. And I, and I'm, I'm very interested in what a body is doing in an audience, like hugely, hugely interested in that. And, um, and I'm really curious about it. And I, I, I don't, I also don't feel so comfortable with the, with that, with the third wall or the fourth wall, whatever. I, I don't feel that comfortable with the separation between myself and an audience. I really long for that kind of interaction that the place of a poetry reading or even a book doesn't, it doesn't always naturally, it's not, it's not naturally present there. So I think maybe, you know, the construction of the book, the construction of Tu Va Bien is, was very conscious of a body moving through that space and thinking about how it was going to go back and forth and, but without trying to really change up the structure of the book at all. Um, and maybe the the performances. I'm smiling because I think it's not a performance. <laughs> They're anxious to, I guess, just reveal and engage in a mutually in a mutual way. And you know the the piece that you talked about the three the layered three, you know, nested um, performances. Many of them are nested, but in the one that Tom was talking about earlier, the nested. Um, set of performances it was really specific I do a um, I call it a rotation of consciousness it's a yoga first yoga nidra practice literally I just wanted to reach out and touch everybody so that's what I'm doing I'm going to name every part of your body and that way I'm going to actually you know grab onto you you're listening to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. Find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. And let's return to our conversation with Tom Kamita and Suzanne Stein, starting with Tom performing a selection of his poems. So in the 1970s book Text Sound Text, Richard Castellanitz describes anonymous tongue twisters as the folk dimension of text sound art, which could also be sound poetry, etc. So I thought to perform some folk music for y'all. How much would check a check 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 How much check a check How much would check a check How much would check a check 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 check
How much ground of ground I'll give ground of good old ground? How much did you have to have? Did you have to have to? How much pocket pockets are for those good as pots? How many cookies? Cookies? How many yaks? Yak, 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 How many cans of cannibal? Forgettable, cannibal cans. Can a can of can is good and can of 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 how much myrtle would you hurdle? Foot of a hurdle myrtle. How much myrtle would you hurdle? Foot of a hurdle myrtle. How much dough would Bobble Dole? Bobble could do dough. How much dough would Bobble Dole? Bobble could do dough. I wish to wish the wish you wish to wish. But if you wish to wish the wish the wish wishes, I won't wish to wish the wish you wish to wish. I wish you were a fish in my dish. I wish to wish, I dream to dream, I try to try, and I live to live, and I die to die, and I cry to cry. But I don't know why. Federal Express is now called FedEx. When I retire, I'll be a FedEx X. But if I'm an officer when I retire, I'll be an ex-FedEx exec. Then, after a divorce, my ex-wife will be an ex-FedEx exec's ex. If I rejoin FedEx in time, I'll be an ex-ex-FedEx exec. When we remarry, my wife will be an ex-ex-FedEx exec's ex. This one's from... Like fifth grade. I was on a pilot ship. 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 Knife and a fork, bottle and a cork. That is the way you spell New York. Knife and a fork, bottle and a cork. That is the way you spell New York. He wants to desert his dessert in the desert. He wants to desert his dessert in the desert. I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. Toy butch, 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 toy butch. Mumbling, bumbling, bumbling, mumbling. Mumbling, bumbling, bumbling, mumbling. Iranian, uranium, Iranian, uranium. Knife and a fork, bottle and a cork. That is the way you spell New York. Knife and a fork, bottle and a cork. That is the way you spell New York. He wants to desert his dessert in the desert. He wants to desert his dessert in the desert. I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. Toy butch, 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 toy butch. Mumbling, bumbling, bumbling, mumbling, mumbling, bumbling, bumbling, mumbling. Iranian, uranium, Iranian, uranium. Okay, Tom, it was amazing to see you do that live in the living room, in the room. And I'm struck by so many things. It's so physical. Something our listeners can't see is how physical it is. It, it is. And um, I guess, so there's a couple things to ask. Um, this is clearly a very key part of your overall practice, the sound work. Um, but your practice is really wide and varied. You do a lot of different kinds of things. We talked about the guerrilla opera at the beginning of the conversation. Um, you do this, you know, really intense sound work that we just heard um you also do a lot of visual work um the book that came out from ugly duckling is it is it being called a book is it a book it it was it was technically called a web book a web book so it's 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 all visual 
Um, is it is the title O? I mean, the title is the large circle in the Unicode, but I sometimes call it the circle book or the O book. But that's because my native language turns that circle into an O. Uh-huh. It could be whatever. Um, and then there's the chapbook with the title, the chapbook that uh, you recently put together out of your residency with Aggregate Space in, um, in Oakland, the chapbook with a title which is, can you describe this title, which has no... It's a number of um, underscores. Okay. Um, th- that chapbook is also highly visual. There's a lot of um, visual play. There's a lot of, um, oh, what's it called? Onomatopoeias? Yes, that's the sound. Optical illusions. Op- thank you. <laughs> Optical illusions. Um, and you've done a number. You've done video work and collaboration work. Um, so you're doing a lot of different kinds of things. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about how you see that these this work interacting or intersecting. Mm. Well, um, well, the one thing that yeah, I guess you did bring up my book works. I mean, I guess. Uh, right. I can mention that too. The collected books, which will be coming out shortly from Gauss PDF, which, uh, I think are the collect all of the 40 books that you wrote between 2011 and 2014, 40 books, the collected books. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, I, I guess I brought that up immediately thinking that, um, that, collection has changed its name to it's now called first thought worst thought collected books 2011 20, 2011 to 2014 and which began as a instagram hashtag that i would use when i thought of a really kind of ridiculous thing to post usually some kind of a pun or a palindrome or something but then i started to think that that actually seems to be very central to all these projects um either some idea comes up and it sounds kind of interesting. I develop it like that circle book where I saw this video called Unicode by this Austrian poet, Jörg Piringer. And I thought, wow, he, and it's, it's the entire Unicode, which is just this typography coding system that incorporates all or most of the, of the most used languages in the world. And he just played the whole thing one, like six frames per second. It's a 30 minute video. And I thought, wow, he had just created this like, supranational yeah translinguistic poem that like anybody could read and i thought well what could you do with that you know and then i did a few studies and then after thinking about it like i decided oh i'm just going to collect all of the circles and ovals in all these languages um so there's a first thought and actually my first thought was not so good in my opinion it was called point line shape so i found all the dots and then I found all the straight lines, and then I found the circles, you know. But that seemed like this kind of glyph genesis that I didn't really want to mm. be writing. It seemed that the kind of non-narrative just circles would create enough narrative. When you look at the book, you kind of, it's like a Rorschach. You put these things together. But then on the other hand, the first thought, worst thought also means I think of a really off, for the most, the worst idea, and then I go with it. So like, those Tongue twisters actually incorporate that in micro levels. Like I, 
I would be, you know, how much would a, wood, would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? I say five times. My gut tells me and culture has told me with four, four timing that I should say it four times. But I said it five times. So it's like the not the best choice. But ultimately created texture that I think was um, maybe that there's that anxiety of the extra, you know, that actually ends up making the piece a bit more interesting. But then like a really bad idea is one of the collective books is called The Idiot by Tom Kamita. <laughs> and it's... Uh, Dostoevsky's The Idiot set in Comic Sans, which is like a really, I don't even need to describe it. So yeah, I mean, some of the books, I, I, I just feel like that's kind of the DNA of a lot of them, just how I work. And also just with across media, um, if an idea comes up and it seems like it needs to be sound, I'll go in that direction. If it seems like it needs to be a book, I just follow through with it in that way. Well, and another project that I was really that I hadn't didn't know anything about that I was taken in by was the uh, Happy Days. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Remix with the Beckett and the. That's a first thought, worst that for sure. <laughs> well, oh. because that came, we were there was a a poetry a uh, plays and pies party for this poet Amy Berkowitz's birthday, and there were no real plays that were brought to this plays and pies party, but we were hanging out in the kitchen and somebody says happy days i'm like oh yeah like thinking about the tv show but the person was thinking about the beckett play <laughs> so then we then immediately this idea was began we will mash up um both of these tech like a script this both scripts into this kind of like horror <laughs> um i saw the trailer i don't oh, think right. that i uh, i don't think it like illuminates the, the 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 full you know meaning of that piece but I'm being somewhat facetious there, but uh, but yeah, it it seemed like a good thought to me. Yeah, I mean, and it was a good experiment. But yeah. also, well, that's the well. This is the thing. I say worst thought, but yeah. I mean, this is actually just a mode I've been in since I started. I was a musician, and I transitioned into writing more, um, and I was always concerned about like, you know, oh, I'm not going to sound smart, or this isn't going to be good. But that was always tripping me up. So. At some point when I moved to San Francisco or right before, I was like, well, I need to learn how to write horribly if I'm going to be able to like actually write something interesting and like embrace, um, kind of get out of my idea of what, how I should be writing, which is really me just breaking out of like socializations and, and also come up, come up with a million ideas, right? Like that takes what, like the idea that these things are bad ideas. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, maybe they're both, but there's 50 of them. And so that, that takes away from it, right? Or that, like, makes it okay that, like, in those yeah. 40, 50 things, there's there's a couple that are not that great. Right. And it's the classic, totally. like, just granting yourself permission and then going. It's good. Combined with the power of, like, yeah, I came up with all 50 of these, yeah. you know? Yeah, but in that way, see, I'm that's one of my concerns with the project. I don't want to come off across as, like, like some poets want to be Superman or something, um, but I have no interest in that. It's just how I worked for four years. And... And I, I think I realized was to, that I, was to not just come up with the idea, but to pursue every idea. Right. I think is really key. You pursued them all. Right. But I didn't. But the book doesn't have like there's a bunch that I never finished or. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're all seriously considered. Whether you f- followed through and like actually made something bigger out of it, like for every idea, even the ones that you know clearly when you're writing about them, you, you don't think they're the best. You know, like you you looked into it and you it's it seems that way from reading right about it. Yeah. yeah but 
some of them were like written in a night and you know how much can you process in a night i mean i started to think about it recently that i just wrote books at the speed that um poets write poems i mean because i found developed ways that i could write a you know 300 page text in five minutes sure but you're really open about the shortcuts that you and i can't remember the specific one but you you talk about uh where you were in the car with someone who told you about a an app like a, a key command that would allow you to like a control oh god it was like a control B, oh yeah, 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 yeah right and and she was like oh no you can you can write this thing in a night well we had been talk. i mean i've been already starting to collage stuff it was yeah the story behind there is actually the story behind all of my like night novels yeah. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, by in 2011, I was like playing with collage and I wanted to write a sci-fi book during National Novel Writing Month. But, you know, the month was almost done and I hadn't written anything. <laughs> I'd written a score. I made this like way that I could do it, you know. And um, but by the 29th, I hadn't written anything. And I'm hanging out with my friend Ashley and she's like, but, you know, we were just t- got to talking and realized, if, of course, if I copy and paste a bunch of things together, I can I can write 300 pages in one night, you know. Um, actually, most of that was a lot of hand typing, but a lot of copying of that. But you're very open about those, those you know, I'm doing air quotes right now, those shortcuts. Like, you're not trying to hide that. You know, it's a, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a part of your process. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, do you think of it as a shortcut? No, I think actually, I just think of it as kind of the DNA of the know, piece. It's just it's like, right. well, yeah. well, like it's like, what can you, whatever you can make in one night has its own. That constraint creates a cer- certain kinds of text. Right. You know, like I could not write the idiot by hand in that long, but I actually could. I mean, one of, you know, a year after that first copy and paste incident, I did this kind of my only my probably my one cyberpunk project, which was Nano Nemo. National Novel Writing Night Month, where I did, I put out like a call for submissions and like um, wrote novels written in a night, you know, and uh, and that produced certain kinds of text. And one of them was all like I wrote the whole thing. What's it was, the duration of a novel? What's the requirement? Oh right, like- well Nano Rimo uh, says that it's 180 pages. So, so you were producing 180 pages in a night. Yeah. But, for the month? But some of them, I mean, uh, throughout the month, not every night. Mm-hmm. I, uh, that's, when you have to have, when you have a day job, that's really so difficult. I, I just want to um, ask you a question or, or at least say that there's another project, another book project, which it's, it's um, temporal making process is quite extended by comparison. The City of Nature project. Oh, right. Which, can, if you could describe the painstakingness with which you're you put that together it's not written in a night right that's like super slow writing um yeah i mean and this is also i'm talking about these projects i don't i mean i might write a night novel tomorrow but it's not really as a huge part of my practice now but right the city of nature is this and it might take me i've realized maybe 20 or 30 years to write because i'm collaging nature descriptions from other books into one nature novel and it's very particular you have really specific rules about yeah the parts that you can include like doesn't have body parts or there's no personification animal. yeah yeah and maybe maybe start i'm gonna say i'm gonna say the name wrong but koda azawa is mm. that how you say yeah, the yeah 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 so it was it began as an adaptation of a video 
and then it grew into it's a very different it, it's it it's not really an adaptation anymore it's a pretty different project because his video was a seven minute loop and i guess in comparison that might be like a short story a short poem to literary lengths but i feel like a novel is a kind of different beast and then i want us to get to one last question if i can jump in because uh I think Suzanne, you wanted to ask this as well, but um, even though you just did perform like a kind of a sound poetry performance, um, you have said you have a certain kind of unease with the term sound poet. What's that about? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think I'm still developing what I'm doing um, is one thing, but also... um, I don't know. I, I think I combine, I, I come from a different background than where that traditionally comes from. I mean, actually that term is a translation from Lautgedicht, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so that's even a kind of remove. And also I feel like I really like the, the first sound poets a lot. I've like learned a lot from them, but I feel pretty distant from, uh, sound poetry that is so abstract and fragmented down to like the morpheme and phoneme at this point, mm-hmm. it seems, I, I don't, I don't, it seems like I'm doing something different. It sounds, it seems more, it's definitely connected, but sure. um, I don't know. It's very complicated. I <laughs> No, I mean, I, as one who like does that kind of stuff, I feel like it's a, it's a complicated, um, you know, saddle or term or, um, yeah, it's a it's a complicated genre as well. Um, it's it, I find it really pr- problematic. Um, yeah, politically, totally. I I don't know. It's uh, I mean his it, the historical genre versus the contemporary genre. Who is recognized as a sound poet these days? What that means? It's it's basically saying it's it's complicated, just like anything else. But yeah, I don't really like the the term either. And yet I see in ways in which, like, you know, whenever I go to Canada to do a reading, always do a sound poem. Right. And it's like, it's like mm. you know, if you're in Canada doing a reading, throw a sound poem in there. Because inevitably, someone's going to be in the audience and be like, oh my God, that was great. I know sound poem. You know, there's like that, wor- that world up there knows that. You know, and the, if you're in L.A. doing a sound poem, you know, there's like two other people that are like, oh yeah, no sound poetry. Yeah. You know, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also difficult for me because I was, I realized I was doing it before I knew about that term. And so, I don't know. I mean, in a way, right, it could be seen as a marketing move. You know, I, in certain crowds, we understand what that means. But um, yeah, I don't know. It'd be great to have a different vocabulary, different conversation. I mean, there was text sound art in the 70s. Yeah. but I don't even know if that's as interesting today. Well, it would it would certainly limit how, you know, I mean, we've described a really diverse set of practices. Yeah, it seems limiting. I think that's a good way to think of it that it that it may be actually limiting, in a way that you know you don't need. I don't think. I mean, I think Suzanne, you've really kind of illuminated the diversity of Tom's practice in a way that yeah, that's sound poetry. we've wound around that sound poet question thing and I think I really wanted to hear from you um, 
the, you know, there's that the, the reticence. I think the thing is you've you've said very much how important this part of your practice is, mm. and I guess I'm I'm a little bit wondering because you know you're you're coming you you said you were, you know, composer or you were you know studying music and then you came here you're going to write and you've done all this kind of writing and yet the sound work seems really, you know, pressing for you in a way and I guess I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about if you're up to it or I don't know how to frame that as a question. Yeah. Well, I think that is just much more exciting for me um, is one thing. I have a day job where I'm a book designer for multiple clients. And by when I get home and I'm doing more book work, it can be pretty exhausting. I actually would like more of that in my life. But also, I don't know, maybe this is not such a big idea, but I just maybe feel like it's kind of in my blood, this stuff. It just makes more sense. It resonates more with me. And I had this experience when I went to Berlin last summer where I read The City of Nature and I read some sound poems and started to actually kind of feel at odds with my book texts, um, at least in the level of performance. I mean, particularly that book, I for a while I wanted to... It, there was an interest in kind of brutalizing the audience with boredom, you know? And in Berlin, that didn't translate very well. I think people, like... I thought it was flat. People told me that it actually was fine, but I felt like I had not done a very good job. And then the next reading in Berlin, a few nights later, I just did a sound poetry set, and I just felt like it... I think I realized that it's okay to create a exciting moment, and, and actually the sound poems, or whatever they're called, uh, they're exciting and they're stimulating and they're not just entertainment. You know, they, they do other things. Well, Tom Kamita and Suzanne Stein, thank you guys so much for being on The People. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. Our theme music is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Or go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. And we're going to go out with a song from the Los Angeles band Suivalk. It's from their album Estas Pars, and the track is called Mare Cognitum.